0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, 30 years ago, active citizenship saved the historic town of Eatonville.
1: I remember the late Mr. Frank Ote and other people saying, NY, PEC cannot just say, you don't want the road. That's not going to work. You're going to have to talk about alternatives.
0: 19th-century novelist Kirk Monroe wrote books for young adults
2: based on his experiences in South Florida. It wasn't until 1881 that Monroe first came to Florida, and it was actually because of kind of an interesting relationship with another famous American author, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And we'll discuss stock car
0: racing pioneer Louise Smith. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: When I get in a Illinois, and noise, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boys. Shove it over. Hey, hey, hey can't you lie? Ah shack a lack a like a like a like a can't you move it? Hey, hey, hey can't you try?
0: Today, most people are familiar with the work of writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston and the historic significance of the town of Eatonville, Florida, but that wasn't true 30 years ago. In 1987, the town of Eatonville celebrated its centennial as the oldest incorporated African-American municipality in the United States. That same year, community organizer N.Y. Nathiri attended a public hearing about the proposed widening of Kennedy Boulevard into a five-lane road. Listening to the discussion, Mrs. Nathiri realized that the project would destroy her historic hometown.
1: The first thing that came into my mind was, this is a classic community-busting road. And the implications of it being a community-busting road were that the historic significance of Eatonville would be destroyed. Because from Political Science 101, I remember there are three ways that you destroy a community. You either remove a school, you remove uh, houses of worship, or you insert a highway. And this was literally textbook. The problem, of course, was that the way process works, the public hearings were pro forma. The staff had already determined what the recommendation was going to be to the county. We didn't realize that, of course, and by the time that the commission hearing, which again was very cynically placed in terms of time, Edenville had completed its um, centennial celebration. The hearing was the Monday before Thanksgiving, the beginning of the holiday season. You know, no, no one's going to pay attention, even if you are concerned. It's Thanksgiving. It's Christmas. You know, it's it's New Year's. Uh, So it's a fait accompli, psychologically as well as legally.
0: The Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community was organized to fight the destructive road project and save the historic community made famous in the books of Zora Neale Hurston, including her novel Their Eyes Were Watching God, her anthropological work Mules and Men, and her autobiography Dust Tracks on a Road. The group formed a coalition with their predominantly white neighbors in Maitland.
1: I became a reluctant spokesperson, and I remember the late Mr. Frank Ote and other people saying, NY, PEC cannot just say, you don't want the road. That's not going to work. You're going to have to talk about alternatives, and your alternatives can't be emotional. So immediately that meant that we were um, engaging with planners, with engineers, Uh, looking at the technical case for the road. What was the technical case and why was that flawed? That was one part. And then the other part was, what is this about historic Eatonville? What is it about Eatonville that is special? If you can imagine, in 1987, and this is not an exaggeration, the decision-makers, the opinion shapers, in other words, white Orange County, had not heard of Zora Neale Hurston. They didn't know Zora, but they did not know that name. As a matter of fact, about this time, there was an alcoholic beverage that was being developed or promoted called Zima. So we had to make sure that the is Zora, Zima. I mean, what is this? You know, it really, in some ways it was funny, but funny, but not funny. So our case was two-pronged. One to say that there was no technical reason to improve the road, and then the other was But don't you know about Eatonville and Zora Neale Hurston and the fact that this little town is historically significant? I mean, do you know that? And so that was our job.
0: As part of a public awareness campaign, the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community, under the direction of N.Y. Nathiri, organized what is now called the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities.
1: By the fall of 1988, we were planning for the first Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts because we knew we had to educate the public. So many of us came out of the education field, but we couldn't be pointy-headed intellectuals. We, We wanted to let the public know about the historic significance of Eatonville and about Zora Neale Hurston, who really, a lot of people know about Zora Neale Hurston, even though you may not know about her, Central Florida. And so we had to make that case. And the way that we said we could do that was by a festival of the arts, and we were very intentional about this. Public programs, exhibitions, in other words, ways to pull the, the general public in to let them know. And so that is what we did. And again, not realizing what we were doing, or the impact of what we were doing. All of this was occurring before people talked about ecotourism heritage tourism, cultural tourism. Those phrases were not a part of the lexicon of tourism. And when we organized the first festival in 1990, we had 10,000 people coming to this little community. Those are not exaggerated figures. We literally were able to count. And not only did we have that kind of number, but all of the the names that you would want to have the late Miss Ruby D. Doctor Robert Hemingway, her literary biographer, um, Alice Walker, who at this time was a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist of the the Color Purple, but. The big thing was that The Color Purple had become a movie, and so everybody knew about The Color Purple. You know, though, there were those of us who said if this was just a book, it would not have been the impact, but the movie, and she had agreed to come. And we'd also done a call for academic papers. We had 55 scholars to respond.
0: PEC continues to present the annual Zora Festival and benefits the community by operating the Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts and the Excellence Without Excuse Computer Arts Lab. It took 10 years for the organization to get Eatonville designated as a National Historic District, but their persistence was rewarded.
1: We had the ability to really bring to bear a constituency's voice, not only at the federal level, but at the county level, because of course it all sifts down. So you have, we have a way, we have a way of actually processing. But yes, you do have to be persistent, absolutely. And the reason that persistence can work with governments is that as long as you stay focused, Government can't stay on your issue by itself. It's got too much to do. It, I mean, this is really the case. As long as you are laser focused and your case is credible and you keep moving and you are able to continue to expand the public discourse, yes, with persistence, you, you it, it really is the case in terms of public. Private money, however, can get things done very quickly and can do a lot of damage. We saw that happen in Eatonville with uh, with some initiatives, but if public, yes, persistence, yes, passion, and if you've got and you can make the good case, you have to stick with it.
0: While Eatonville has historic significance as the oldest incorporated African American municipality and the home of Zora Neale Hurston, the town does not have many historic structures. Joe Clark's store with its lion porch does not exist, nor does the house where Hurston grew up. This lack of historic buildings caused difficulties for Theory and PEC at the state and national level.
1: We, as a, a as a community, I mean, we were serious about historic preservation. As a matter of fact, I mean, that's who we are. That that is who we are um, a, as an organization. Yes, historic preservation, cultural arts, community revitalization, but ultimately, that I mean, that's who we are in our essence. And we would go to the National Trust for Historic Preservation meetings religiously every year. And when you're saying, you know, trying to find ways, how do you make the case for Eatonville? How do, how do you let people know the importance of Eatonville? I mean, we, we would take a delegation of maybe uh, four people and um, Mrs. Ernestine McWhite, uh, who was on a board president and on our board for years, uh, my mother Ella Dinkins, uh, May St. Julian, uh, myself, typically, that would be the that would be the four. And when I say we would work the halls of this of the National Trust, I, I, we met with um, Dick Moe, who was a president. I mean, you know, the, the people they, they knew the people in Edenville, uh because, frankly, there weren't a lot of African Americans who were attending the conference. And this is before the National Trust developed what they called these um, diversity scholarships. In other words, we were paying our way, and I, and I want to say to you, I, and, I, and this is with some, some respect, the National Trust knows how to really extract money from you. You know, if they knew how to charge you for air, I mean, they were really very good at, um, it was excellent professional training, but what I'm saying to you is that we were investing some big-time dollars for an organization that, you know, really wasn't well-funded. But, of course, we were paying, um, each person paid their way, and I think that the organization, uh, you know, took care of, of me as a staff. But the bottom line is that it did take us 10 years to actually make the case that even though Eatonville may not have had built environment buildings, that there was a case to be made in terms of the criteria to be listed on the National Register of Historic Places.
0: N.Y. Nathiri is Executive Director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. The 29th Annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities will be held during the last week of January.
3: Oh, the rooster the backer, the hand-dipped snuff. The biddy can't do it, but he struts his stuff. Shove it over. Hey, hey hey can't you lie there i shackle oh, shake a lack a lack a lack a lack a ah, can't you move there Hey hey, can't you try Yeah come a woman walking across the field A mouth exhausting like an automobile shove it over Hey, 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 can't you lie now? I shackle like-a, 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 like-a Can't you move it? Hey, hey, hey oh, can't you try? The cam got a pistol, he tried to play bad But I'm gonna take it if it make me mad I'll Shove it over Hey, hey, hey oh, can't you lie now? I shackle like-a, 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 like-a Can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you
0: try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Don't miss the second annual Florida Frontiers Festival to be held Saturday, October 21st on the grounds of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. Performers include the Willie Green Blues Band, legendary Florida folk musician Frank Thomas, singer-songwriter Chris Call, and many others. There will be highwayman artists, vendors, demonstrators, food, kids' activities, and a beer garden. Museum admission is included. Find out more at floridafrontiersfestival.com.
4: If they asked me, I could write a book About the way you walk and whisper and look I could write a preface somehow we met So the world would never forget
0: Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, Ben, this week we're talking about 19th century novelist Kirk Munro, who based his books on his own experiences in South Florida
2: in the 1880s. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Uh, Charles Kirk Munro was actually born in Wisconsin in the 1850s and and lived on the frontier. His father was a missionary. They later moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he continued his education. But as a teenager in the mid-1860s, Uh, He decided that he wanted to see the world and actually signed on with a surveying party uh, that was traveling around the southwestern part of the United States. Uh, He had an opportunity to meet with some interesting people, including uh, General Custer and uh, Kit Carson and some of these famous figures from the Wild West. He continued his uh, surveying operations for a number of years, eventually moved back to the Northeast and got a job as a journalist uh, working for the New York Sun. Uh, And he was a a travel writer um, and submitted a a number of really interesting articles about adventure and outdoor life along the the Florida frontier. He published a number of of periodicals and stories about the American frontier lifestyle in the mid-19th century. Uh, But it wasn't until 1881 that Monroe first came to Florida. And it was actually because of kind of an interesting relationship with another famous American author, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Stowe's youngest son had married Monroe's sister, so he first came down, visited with their family in northeast Florida, and really fell in love with the wild Florida frontier. He brought his small uh, 14-foot sailing canoe And uh, uh, sailed up and down the east coast of Florida, eventually making his way around the Gulf, and really enjoyed uh, the wildlife and and all of the wonderful kind of outdoor activities. Uh, So he decided to move permanently to Florida a few years later, brought his family with him, and it was um, that backdrop in uh, southeast Florida, present-day Coconut Grove, that served as kind of his muse for a lot of his early writings. Now, I said before he had worked as a journalist, but he really uh, dove into the genre that we now refer to as young adult fiction uh, in the 1880s and started producing a series of uh, stories for uh, young adults kind of based around uh, a teenage boy and his adventures in, in the Florida wilderness.
0: Well, here at the Library of Florida History, you have several first edition copies of Monroe's books that you pulled from the collection. What are we looking at here?
2: Well, we're looking at three of his books that relate specifically to Florida. Now, out of the dozens of novels that he would publish throughout his lifetime, seven of which took place in Florida, most of them were kind of contemporary stories. A few of them are actual uh, based in, in uh, some historical uh, event that occurred in Florida, and he kind of couched it in this very interesting novelistic fictional writing. So, the first book we're looking at is actually the first full length novel that he published in 1886, and it's called Wakala. And the first thing that strikes you is probably the beautiful artwork and printed on the cover itself. We see two pink flamingos and this beautiful uh, sunrise. This is typical of kind of a late 19th century Victorian age book. It kind of drew you in with these um, dramatic and, and romanticized portrayals of, of life on the frontier that, that many Americans had never experienced and would never experience. And we're talking about kind of a, a vanishing wilderness, and, and Monroe captured that lifestyle in a lot of these volumes. So Wakulla is, is interesting. It, it follows a family moving from Maine and resettling in the Florida frontier uh, in near uh, what we believe to be probably the St. Mark's River area. Uh, and it follows the, the protagonist who is a 16 year old uh, boy the, the son of, of the uh, family that moves down from Maine and it kind of follows him along his adventures. At one point he uh, falls into a sinkhole and, and emerges uh, in, in another place entirely he catches alligators with some of the local uh, Florida boys who had grown up in the area and it just kind of follows his adventures. Now uh, you know the, the stories don't have a, a whole lot of plot um, which isn't um, unheard of for again this, this time period but Um, There's still some really wonderful imagery, and and the stories are just fascinating. It really did kind of capture a lot of his experiences, and he portrays that through his writings. Now, the second book we're looking at, and this is probably his most well-known book about Florida, was called The Flamingo Feather. Now, this is one of those uh, stories that was based in a historical event and actually follows a young French teenager the son of a, of a nobleman who follows his uncle, an actual historical figure named René de Laudonniere, uh, to Florida in the 1560s to found uh, the French Huguenot colony named uh, La Caroline or Fort Caroline, which was an actual colony. Now, the, the character, of course, didn't exist, but Monroe uses these uh, this, this historical backdrop to kind of build that story, and he follows this young man who is also named René uh, throughout uh, his adventure, in the Florida Huguenot Colony Eventually being taken over by the Spanish, the young character then lives with the native inhabitants, the Timucuan Indians, who are living around Northeast Florida, and then eventually makes his way back to France. So again, it's a fascinating story, um, and he tried to couch it in as much historical fact as possible. Now, lastly, we're looking at a 1902 book entitled *Through Swamp and Glade: A Tale of the Seminole Wars*. Now, Monroe really uh, became a big proponent of the rights of the Seminole Indians, especially after the end of the Seminole Wars. Now, he he had been living in Florida again since the 1880s, and by 1902, he knew a lot of the surviving Seminole Indians, many of whom had fought in the Seminole Wars, and was very empathetic towards their cause uh, and towards their well-being. So he wrote this book. This book is very uh, unflattering, at least, towards the U.S. government's involvement in the Seminole Wars, and it, and it paints kind of a, an interesting tale of, of how the war progressed from the eyes of the Seminole Indians. Now he, he again published several other books but these are uh, a few at least the first editions that we have in the collection.
0: Now, I understand that Kirk Munro stopped publishing books in 1905 although he lived a long time after that right?
2: That's right. He actually lived in Southeast Florida until 1930, until his death in 1930. But he stopped publishing after 1905, and there's very little evidence that he wrote really anything after that time period. And from what we can gather, a lot of that has to do with the rapid progress and growth that's occurring in Florida at this time period. So... By 1896, uh, the Florida East Coast Railroad had reached his home in Coconut Grove, the Miami area of Coconut Grove, and with it brought this surge of new visitors, new pioneers, uh, and new settlers who were changing the face of this frontier. So in a lot of ways, we feel like Kirk Monroe probably lost that that zeal for the kind of adventurous idealism that, that he had tried to capture in a lot of his early works. So even though he lived in Coconut Grove and uh, from what we can tell from other biographies, from people like um, David Fairchild, who grew up in Miami in the in the 20s and 30s, he was still uh, an eccentric inhabitant within the Coconut Grove community, and a lot of people knew him, and he would love to tell people about these early Florida stories, and, and in fact, a lot of his other stories about traveling the world. Um, but he never really wrote those down. Uh, so he lived a, a very interesting life, and a lot of that life comes through in a lot of these early works, especially the ones about Florida. An interesting story. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco.
4: of the plot Is just to tell them that I love you so much, Then the word as my and how to make to friend.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. Louise Smith was a pioneer in stock car racing in Daytona. We get the story from Zach Barnes, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida.
5: She was born in rural Georgia. She loved anything mechanical. She and her younger brother, they got a hold of her father's Model T. She knew how to start it and how to drive it, but she didn't know how to stop it, and she ended up driving it through the chicken house. She liked driving. She liked speed. She liked being daring and living, living life on the edge, if you will. And then, uh, you know, owning a junkyard, she and her husband had uh, access to most any kind of part or car, and uh, she built herself a hot rod, and she used to go tearing up uh, the streets of Greenville, South Carolina before her driving career.
6: That was Buzz McKim, the official NASCAR historian, discussing the early days of stock car racing legend Louise Smith, known as the First Lady of Racing. Her racing career started in Greenville, South Carolina, during the early 1940s. She was discovered by NASCAR co-founder Bill France. Buzz McKim tells me more about the recruitment of Louise Smith.
5: The very first race she ever ran was in Greenville, Bill France, who founded NASCAR, had been promoting the races at the Greenville Pickens Speedway. It was a half-mile dirt track. It's still there, one of the oldest continually run NASCAR tracks in the country. And he was looking for something a little unusual, something to kind of draw more people, maybe kind of a novelty. And so he asked the police, do you have any good lady drivers in the area? And they said, oh, golly, that Louise Smith, yeah, she's a terror on the street. So uh, Bill France convinced her that uh, she needed to become a race car driver.
6: Since the beginning, auto racing has primarily been a male-dominated sport. Women were excluded from participating in the races, as well as assisting in the pits. Louise Smith was one of the first women to break down this barrier, but she and other female drivers were met with extreme prejudice on the track.
5: The lady drivers of that day had to sit in the grandstands and then before the race, the mechanics or the car owner would bring the car around to the starting line and the drivers, of female drivers, would have to come out of the stands and drive the car and then go back in
6: the stands. Like many other race car drivers, Louise Smith had a dream to compete in Daytona, which was the main destination for serious stock car racers. In 1949, she entered her first NASCAR race and promptly wrecked her husband Noah's brand new Ford Coupe. Louise Smith had a reputation for being an aggressive driver, which was usually reciprocated with equal aggression. Some men resented Louise's place on the track, while others embraced it.
5: Buddy Schumann, who was one of the real, real stars of back of the day, he was one of the founders of NASCAR, a very good driver, and uh, the first technical inspector. He was really, really good at spinning other people out, and he had a very slick, almost a valet move of getting onto your uh, left rear corner and just giving you a little tap. And he saw that Louise was really, you know, having a a hard time out there with the guys, giving her a lot of grief. So he taught her his signature move. And uh, she eventually earned the respect of everybody she raced against.
6: Louise Smith raced from 1949 to 1956. In 1999, she became the first woman inducted into the International Motorsports Hall of Fame with 38 wins.
5: The reason she's in the Motorsports Hall of Fame or International Motorsports Hall of Fame is for her contribution to the expansion of the sport. Yeah, the sport is open to anybody, and she was one of the very first ones, one of the very first females to uh, to take advantage of that opportunity. And she had to put up with probably a lot of sexism and uh, abuse. And she wasn't the winningest driver, but she certainly had uh, the most heart of anybody from her era and she was bound and determined to do it. She was not going to be dissuaded. And um, she was just a a groundbreaker, really. And I think that that had a lot to do with her uh, getting inducted into that Hall of Fame.
6: We would like to thank Buzz McKim for his time and expertise. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Zachary Barnes, a student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can also find archived editions of our public television series, Florida Frontiers. You can also join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.